This is Hear Me Out. I'm Celeste Headley. Political journalism is an extraordinarily polarizing field, even and maybe especially among people who are not in the industry. You definitely have feelings about how the news covers elections. Broadly, Americans are suspicious of the mainstream media, and election years shine a spotlight on our best and, frankly, worst practices. You've probably heard the term horse race journalism, the practice of focusing on polls, momentum, campaigning, who's winning. It's not about policy and substance. The question is, as we evaluate the role of the fourth estate in 2024, do people even want to hear about policies? Or is there a role for the horse race? I don't think horse race journalism should be the only kind of political journalism that is done in the campaign. It's just that a lot of people want that, which is not the media's fault. Chris Siliza, writer and commentator, joins us in just a moment. Stay with us. Welcome back to Hear Me Out. I'm Celeste Headley. So in the interest of full disclosure, let me get this out of the way right at the top. I really hate horse race election coverage. I hate hearing constant polling numbers, questions about messaging instead of about policies. I hate that reporters care about likability. I find it irritating that coverage of Ron DeSantis talked about his plan to defeat Trump and rarely if ever mentioned that his positions on the issues were nearly identical to Trump's. And we should note, for those of you who are not super plugged in to the media and journalism discourse, I'm not alone. A lot of thinkers and advisory groups in our industry are moving away from horse race, and some outlets have vowed to make this change as well, moving toward less talk of who's winning, more talk of what's happening, um, less of is it popular, and more of is it good. So a defense of horse race journalism at this moment in time would be a relatively unpopular opinion. And luckily, that's what we have for you today. Chris Siliza is a commentator and writer, and he joins us now. Welcome. Man, I am happy to be here standing against the bulwark. Yes, I, I will. <laughs> I, 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 I want to make clear that while I am a believer generally in horse race journalism, what you just outlined is not at all an unfair critique. And I don't think it should be only horse race journalism, but we can get into it. Well, let's start with, you know, most of the people listening are not journalists. Yeah. Um, what's your definition of horse race journalism? What does horse race coverage mean? Well, uh, yes. Great thing, I think, because a lot of people use it and don't. I, there's a lot of different definitions. Here's mine, and, and maybe it differs from yours. But mine is um, journalism that focuses on who's up and who's down. Literally a horse race. Like, this horse is ahead, this horse is in second, this horse is in third. Um, looks at uh, heavy emphasis on polling, uh, both of the horse race, the, the literal sort of, you know, uh, Donald Trump is at 50, Ron DeSantis is at 20, Nikki Haley is at eight, uh, as well as sort of the traits and attributes of the candidates. Um, how are they connecting to voters? Are they connecting to voters? Are they good in debates? Uh, are they... Um, effectively staying on message those in a lot of ways it's also described in a in a less pejorative way a sort of process political journalism focused on the process of how these people run for office i think horse race journalism has become it wasn't when i started in journalism way back when but but it's definitely become a pejorative i think those of us who seek to defend at least parts of it would prefer process journalism 
Yeah, and it's also been called strategic framing. Um, Kathleen Hall Jameson at the Annenberg Policy Center calls it tactical framing. Um, so I, let's start there with this idea that it focuses on strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, because who when, when we talk, when we cover strategy, how someone plans to get votes, how they're earning money, etc., how is that serving voters? I mean, I know that we as political reporters are, are very interested mm-hmm. in that, but surveys show that, that the audience, the, the voters themselves, aren't that interested in it. So here's what I would say. I, I guess I would disagree a little bit with that. I, I, I have sat in, you know, I, I worked at the Washington Post, at CNN, and, and at a, a smaller place early in my career called the Cook Political Report, which is a political handicapping service, a nonpartisan political handicapping service, which is the essence of horse race journalism. But that's a whole other story. Um, yeah. What I would say is that I've sat in lots and lots of focus groups over those times. Now, focus groups are not a poll, right? This is probably for people who are familiar right. with the focus group. This is probably, I mean, it depends, but if ish people usually they're um you know selected as a way to try to be representative of you know whether it's suburban republicans or conservative republicans or liberal democrats or whatever you know they're selected as as a as a group and a pollster a sort of a professional pollster runs them through a series of questions now the weird thing about it is that people like me sometimes get to sit behind a wall where you can sort of hear it's a you know it's a one-way mirror where you can sort of watch them and how they respond to questions. You can read the transcript afterward, but I always think it's helpful to to watch them. And the thing that I keep coming back to is in all of those focus groups, there was very rarely, I wouldn't say never, because I think absolutes are ridiculous. There certainly were moments where people were very focused on a policy or two that a candidate had. But by and large, no matter what the question was, the answers were very personality focused. It was I just don't like how he looks. He he seems uncomfortable. Uh, I, 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 my uncle sent me an email that says he's a bad guy. Like it's very personality driven. And I think, again, I don't think horse race journalism should be the only kind of political journalism that is done in the campaign. That would be terrible. Uh, I think that there is a place for it though, because I do think it reflects the, the fact that these are at some level, particularly a presidential race, they are personality contests. Like, look, um, John Kerry was a decorated military veteran uh, running in 2004 against a guy who had not served in George W. Bush and who had executed a war that most people didn't uh, approve of. And yet George W. Bush wound up winning that. Like, if we just went by policies, if the way that people voted was Go to one candidate's uh, website, look at all the policy positions, put a check mark by the ones you agree with, then do the same with the other candidate check mark, and then add up the check marks and just vote for the candidate who has more check marks. It would be a different thing. But in my experience, I have not seen that that's how voters make their minds up. So, I mean, my first thing is I think that's a pretty self-fulfilling prophecy. I think that um, we as journalists began, I'm, we probably have a similar length of time in this business, right? I've been doing this for 25 years. Journalists began to cover personalities, especially when uh, TV came into play with Nixon and Kennedy. Um, And so that is what political coverage now is. I think it would be very difficult now to separate 
um, the voter's interest in personality and decide whether it was the chicken or the egg that really started that. Um, the, the other thing I will say is that I, I, I actually agree that there's a place for horse race journalism, meaning I think there is a place for talking about polling, but it's tiny. Um, and, you know, I'm looking at some of the studies of the past few elections uh, and the percentage of news reports that covered the, the, the horse race in 2016 and then again in 2020 was nearly 45 percent. And policy stands was 10 percent or less. Leadership experience was 3 percent. So, I mean, the horse race is what we are covering and it. It should not be dominating. So I have a question. Can we take like a a, a recent example? Because I I want I know, I know you're doing the the interviewing. I just want to ask a question because I I wonder if yeah, we, go ahead. I wonder if we'll uh, agree or disagree. Um, Joe Biden's age as a political yes. as a political issue. Yes, Many, I think we have drummed that up. Okay, did we did we and by we I mean sort of the 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 royal we of the media. Did we create that as an issue or is that an issue that voters have that we cover? Maybe to your point, it may be a chicken and egg and it's an unanswerable question, but I, I wonder what you think. Uh, so my I, I actually think that um, it was a talking point created by uh, those in with the GOP and the conservative parties that we began quoting them on and interviewing them around and it was repeated. And, you know, research into misinformation shows that um, when a false piece of information is repeated again and again, it, the the chances that the listener will think that it's true mm -hmm. go up and up and up. Mm -hmm. So I think that we covered the the political strategists and the commentators talking about his age, and that then it became an issue because. Look, let's be honest. The, the fact of the matter is, is he's only a few years older than Donald Trump. If we're basing it on how many flubs he's made, you and I both know Joe Biden has been making flubs and gaffes in his speeches since for decades. And if you look at a transcript of Donald Trump's speeches, they're often incomprehensible. I do that and I so, agree with you. Yeah. So the idea of Biden, you know, using the wrong word or coming, calling someone the wrong name and that be an indicator of his age, that's it's pretty thin to me. So I guess I disagree is too strong a word. The, the only thing I would say is like the facts are this, like he's the oldest person ever to be elected. Uh, Absolutely. President. He'd be 85 yeah. years. He'd be the oldest person ever to run for a second term. By the way, you're exactly right. Donald Trump is not 45. Donald Trump is 77, right? So, like, it's not yeah. as though we're talking about Mickey Haley even, who's, like, 52. Yeah. To me, if you... And again, this may be... You might say this is unimportant. When I watch Joe Biden move, talk, etc., it seems to me he has slowed down. I don't considerably is such a subjective word. He has slowed down somewhat even from when he first ran. So to me, it is visible that he is showing the signs of aging. Um, so it does not. I don't think the media has created this because to me, anyone who's paying any attention. And I know most voters don't pay a ton of attention, certainly not as much as you and I do to what they do. What <clears throat> excuse me, what these politicians do on a daily basis. But to anyone with a set of eyes. It is clear that Joe Biden is elderly. And I think that raises the question, given the fact that he is 81, he will be 85 in 2029. 
you know, is this a job for someone that age? Now, I'm not saying that precludes that we have a conversation about Donald Trump, too. I'm just saying the idea who is also elderly, right? Who is 77? <laughs> absolutely. I'm just saying yeah. the idea that it's totally off, and this is the idea of the Biden White House party. It's totally immediate creation. And no one think, no regular person thinks that. Like I think that it is, and they told me I could swear on this, so I'll do a light swear. I think that is bullshit. Like I just do not buy that. I do not buy that. The, the the media did not create the fact that Joe Biden is 81 years old. They did not create the fact that he moves slowly. Look, if I'm vertical at 81, I will be thrilled, much less if I'm president of the United States. Like, I'm not taking anything away from him. But, like, I'm not running for president when I'm 81. Like, my mom is 76. She's wonderful. I love her. I don't want her to be president. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think, look, uh, uh, Congress is a, a geriatric pool, yes. right? Like our government is elderly. Yes. And there is a lot of discussion, substantive discussion that could be made about that. But to me, this issue of his age is less important for us to cover than how has he done on the job? Not, is he visibly old? Yeah, you know, he's old. So is Donald Trump. They they both gaff. Biden always has. Maybe Trump has. I haven't been covering him except for when he ran for president. So yep. you know, I, my memory isn't long. But there's a diff. There's a separate issue in terms of how old our government is, which is a real issue and a question, um, especially in light of some of the senators who've refused to retire etc. And then there's the question of how does this matter when you're choosing a president? When you walk into that voting booth, it's our duty to, to make sure we have informed people what this person is going to do in office and how that's going to impact their lives. And his age is not really going to impact their lives all that much. So, okay, so just two things, I think. One, I could argue, like, his age could very well impact their lives. Like, the the actuarial table suggests men, white men in America live to 81 or 82 on average. So if he dies, I mean, I know people like talking about this, but, like, if he does happen to die, it does happen, right? It's going to happen to all of us. Then someone yep. else will be president. It will be Kamala Harris. Like, that is a thing that while, of course, if you elect someone who's 45, they could totally go out and have a heart attack or get hit by a bus tomorrow, right? I mean, of course that is true. It is more likely that that happens when you're 81, 82, 83, 84, 85. That's my one point. So I do think it matters a little bit in that regard in terms of the choice. The other thing I would say is like, I really, I don't want to be a horse race absolutist in the sense that I think 100% or even 75% of the coverage should be horse race journalism. And honestly, like a lot of the good journalism I see isn't like you're talking about stakes and what they, you know, stakes versus odds and, and what they would do. Just as an example, I mean, I think the New York Times, you know, Maggie Hagerman, John Swan and Charlie Savage have done four or five pieces in the last couple months that are focused exclusively on this is what Donald Trump is saying, whether it's mass deportations, reinstating the Muslim ban, a purge of the civil service. Um, you know, uh, rewarding schools that teach anti-woke policies. Like, to me, some of the criticism of the media, particularly from the left, is people who say, 
I can't believe no one, no one would really support this sort of stuff. And therefore, if they were educated about it, they surely wouldn't vote for Donald Trump, to which I say, like, I actually think the media doesn't do a bad job of educating people, particularly about what Donald Trump thinks, says and will do. It's just that a lot of people want that, which is not okay, the media's so fault. I, we have to take a break here. I could not disagree more that we don't do a bad job, <laughs> but we're going to get back to that in just a moment. Um, we have to take a break. This is Hear Me Out, a podcast from Slate. Stay with us. And we're back. I'm Celeste Headley. This is Hear Me Out. And today we're talking about horse race coverage with Chris Siliza, who says there is a place for horse race journalism, and me, who says no, <laughs> no to the horse race. <laughs> so let me start with, we, we just ended before the break with you saying you didn't think we've done a bad job. But by what measure? Because number one, I, I looked through a huge, a vast amount of analyses, including two meta-analyses of coverage from the major news organizations, not just the cable news, but also Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, NPR, etc. Yep. Um, and most of these have been recent, these analyses. Most of them have been since 2015. But for example, one that 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 looked at coverage uh, from the second week of August in, in 2016, all the way up to election day found that the competitive game occupied 55 to 60 percent of coverage substantive concerns was only about 10 percent frankly most of the analyses shows that by and large horse race coverage domi dominates to a massive extent and substantive issues concerns talking about the actual policies uh are dwarfed in fact that one that was looking at the months just before Election Day in 2016 found that while the competitive game was, you know, nearly 60 percent, campaign process took up the other third, <laughs> so, which I would actually include in right. horse race coverage. Right. The other thing I will say is that we have also have it. We can't pretend like we don't have the research on this. There was one meta-analysis of 32 studies going back to the 1990s that said that found coverage of this type in which we, we, we portray it as strategic, as winners and losers, um, leads to this perception among the people that politics is dominated by the motivation to get power rather than any substantive concerns for common good. I want to quote the scientist here, the lead scientist on this, because he said, Horse race coverage inhibits the development of an informed citizenship because the public is mostly familiar with the political rivalries instead of actually knowing what the substantive debate is about. And when we test people about their, their knowledge of political topics, people don't know what's in the Green New Deal. <laughs> there was a lot of coverage of the Green New Deal. Almost none of it was explaining what was inside it and whether experts thought that would actually work to address climate change. It was all about, did people like uh, Representative Cortez, how Nancy Pelosi might deal with this, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't think we're doing a good job. I don't think we're informing people. Again, like I, I would be totally good with the horse race journalism being less than 50% of the overall coverage. Like I, I'm not. What percentage? Uh, would like, you, I could think you go 50, down 50 to? would be fine. 50, 50 ish. 
would be okay. I mean, I know we're not there yet. And I, I agree with you, by the way, about like, to me, separating it, separating out like campaign journalism versus process, it's basically the same thing, right? I mean, it yeah. adds up to the same thing. It's two sides of the yeah. same coin. So I, I'm with you that it's not, we're not there yet. And I think the pendulum has at least begun to swing a little bit in favor or, or against sort of horse race journalism. And, and I don't know what the opposite of horse race journalism, but policy issue focused journalism. I would just suggest, and I don't know, I think we're just going to disagree about this. And maybe you have data because you definitely have more data than me. So maybe you have data on this. So if you do, I'm, I would love to hear it. But I would just suggest that the idea that people are yearning for, or even if they had slews of policy coverage, that that would be the way in which they would make decisions about president in particular. You know, we can debate House and Senate and governors, all this stuff, but they would make decisions about president. I just don't think is entirely borne out. I mean, you know, like, why did George Washington win? He was a war hero who was six foot two and good looking and a good speaker. Like, I just, it's, I don't. I mean, we've had almost no presidents who are under six feet tall. There's a bias. There's a bias toward tall the, people I, in society. Yes, but I, but that's the whole point. Like, if all we were focused on, if the media was to blame for the fact that people, you know, uh, focused on height or looks, like, why has it always been true? The media has always done that. Like from from yeah, they kind of have. <laughs> I don't know. I think, yeah, I I just think there's a belief that people really want policy coverage. And I will tell you, I mean, I hate to talk about this side of the business, but look, the business side of, of media is tough. CNN laid me off. You know what I mean? Like, like, yeah. it was, like it is a reality. And I think now that we have all these tools to measure who's on what story, how, you know, what rated, what didn't rate, I will tell you in my time at the Washington Post and at CNN, and again, you'll say this is a, I think you'll say this is a, a just a, a symptom, but the stories that did the poorest were oftentimes these deep dives into climate, for example, uh, into immigration, like issues that are clearly of import to the country and its future. We couldn't get people to read them. Now, maybe they were, I guess they were poorly written. I mean, I don't think they were poorly written. I thought they were pretty captivating, but people kind of liked the story about, because it was easy, the story about 52 to 48. And that's a hard thing. And I don't know that that's the media's fault as much as it is human nature. I mean, look, I am not blaming the hot mess that is our democracy on the media. There is a whole concatenation of circumstances bringing us to this moment when we're sort of teetering on the edge of losing it, right? You know, Ben Franklin famously said, we've got a Republican, if we can keep, totally. if we can keep it, yep. we may not be able to keep totally it, agree. right? I mean, that's the truth. On the other hand, let me give you some of the data. Yes, here, because at one point there was an analysis of almost three dozen studies that involved nearly 39,000 to 40,000 voters. And they found that citizens give less positive evaluations to strategy frame news stories. Those stories are considered to be biased than the issues based stories. And people think Horse race coverage is less credible, it's less interesting, and it's of low quality. Now, you're talking about layoffs. I truly believe that 
you know, trust in our business is at an all-time low. Mm -hmm. People are choosing to stay away from news coverage. And the WHO has found that one of the reasons they choose to stay away from it is because it causes anxiety and literally causes depression and physiological mm -hmm. symptoms. I think that our insistence on framing everything as us versus them which, yes, is going to draw eyes because that's almost tribal. It's almost evolution. It's, it's tapping into an evolutionary um, impulse in us to think of ourselves in terms of those who are for us and those who are yep. against us. On the same, by the same token, though, it's not good for democracy. <laughs> it's not doing our, 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 in my case, public radio listeners a service. Um, it's, it's literally being <laughs> recommended by doctors that they avoid it and it's not making, leading to a more informed media. I mean, you're right. Uh, people have been talking about poli po politicians in the U S at least and describing their looks, uh, as long as we've had media and journalism in the United States, people often describe George Washington as tall, stately, muscular, handsome, on the other hand, I would say that our insistence on on focusing on things like uh, physical attractiveness and likability, we know through research, harms female candidates again and again and again and again. It harms uh, candidates of color again and again and again. So, yeah, people may be noticing those things, but we don't have to report on them. So, again, I don't I don't disagree entirely with you i really don't um yeah i think i think you have that's a very valid point um particularly about how it impacts candidates of color and women um the thing that i struggle with is is the job of journalists to tell people what they should be interested in or is it to report on what people tell them they should be interested in or they, they are interested in rather you know is the job of journalists to say look the the world is getting warmer. We are having more um, unpredictable weather events, whether they be flash snowstorms or tsunamis or, you know what I mean? And there's a clear reason behind this and we know this is bad and we can do something about it and here are the things we can do. Is that the job of journalism or is the job of journalism to say climate change is a massive problem and yet people remain blase about it you know or like i just don't know what the right way to cast journalism is because i was always taught that the first one was activism that you know it was activism to be like uh here's what i am smart i know things i went to you know wherever uh i know that this is an issue and you need to care about it as opposed to well what do you care about and then let's write about that now i think that that formulation has gotten more and more i find it more and more, more difficult with donald trump in particular right like it's hard to just be like on the one hand the candidate is old on the other hand the candidate tried to overturn democracy like it, you know it's it's not a it's harder i mean i think that line between i mean activism, again they're both old <laughs> right that line between activism and journalism to me is much more um, blurry than it once was, and, and I'm 47. I think for people who are 27, they view it totally differently, which I which I understand. I'm just saying the way that I was taught was we cover what people tell us. We don't tell people. 
So um, this, you've, I'm so glad you've brought this up. This is a really incredible point uh, that I want to talk about, but we do have to take a break first. Um, so we will be back to talk about this. What is the point of journalism in just a moment? Stay with us. This is Hear Me Out. We're back. This is Hear Me Out, a podcast from Slate, and I'm Celeste Headley, talking today with Chris Siliza about horse race coverage. But just before the break, uh, you brought up a really, really important point, I think, Chris, which was whether journalists should be telling people what are the important issues or whether we should be taking our cues from um, our audience. And I Yeah, you said it better than I did, but yes. (laughs) So, (laughs) So this is the thing. We are always telling people what we think is important. I mean, there's no such thing as an unbiased journalist because simply by choosing not only what to report on, but who to interview and how to to uh, put that person in context, how to put their remarks in context, which part of a speech to quote, we're making those uh, substantive uh, those subjective decisions <laughs> all the time, and. We, we, since we can't be objective, since that's impossible for homo sapiens, I feel like we should own it. We should just be upfront with the fact that, look, we are human beings. We're making these decisions. We are professionals, but we're going to use transparency to, to fill in for the place where that suppose that pretend objectiveness used to be. I mean, objectiveness is not possible. So therefore, what we can do is say, this is why we chose this issue. Um, or we can put out um, questionnaires and, and let our audience vote on what they would like to hear more about. I mean, there are outlets that are, are experimenting with that right now, and none of them have heard from a majority of people saying they want to know more about the candidates' personalities. They're all about what are they going to do on abortion? What are they going to do on the the, the truck traffic in my neighborhood? I mean, you know, politics are always personal. People want to know how those policies are going to impact their lives. So I agree with you on the objective thing. Um, I, I do totally agree. I think I think that is a very certainly a view I was. I mean, I was told very early on in my journalist career not to vote. Um, because the, the, you know, that would suggest a finger, a subconscious finger on the scale, even if I did everything I could to be objective. So I agree with you. We all, I mean, look, I am a 47 year old white male who grew up in Connecticut and went to prep school. That is a, that is a, (laughs) you know. That is right. not, yeah, yeah. that is not everyone's experience, man. Like I get you it. You are central casting. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, yeah. I get it. So I think we have to be aware of that. At the same time, I, I don't think it is wrong to do what we can to represent all sides. So just, I, I'm very Trump focused. I just spent a lot of time thinking about him. So I think we spend a lot of time on what Donald Trump says and does. I think we could do more, for example, to talk about like, who is it that, and I know liberals certainly hate this, but like, why do people support him? Like, is everyone who supports him an ignorant racist? Like, that seems to me an oversimplification and not part of our job as journalists. So like, I I do think there are ways that we can 
try to use journalism to understand perspectives that are not our own. And I think that is of value um, while acknowledging that, like, yes, of course you come to it and you're right. Um, I mean, who I talked to was often determined by, particularly when I was a younger reporter, like who came into the Panera and looked friendly so that I could talk to them. You know what I mean? Like it was. Yeah, I was absolutely. Not, I was I've not been super there. strategic about it. It was just kind of like it's 1130 a.m. in a Panera in Kentucky. And I need to they, they told me I need to get some voter voices. Yeah. So, yeah, but you're right. It's still, look, the kind of person who comes into a Panera at 1130 in the suburbs, it, you know, is a different person. And looks friendly to totally you. Totally right. Totally right. Yeah. So, so I think I'd buy all of that. Can I make one? I just wanted to make one point. I want to make it earlier, but I, I do want to make it because you mentioned questionnaires that say people don't want more campaign journalism. So pornography, just stick with me here. I, this will not be, I will not work blue. <laughs> this, this will wrap up relatively quickly and I hope we'll, we'll make some sense. I feel like anytime you start with the word pornography, it could go in a lot of different directions. Okay. Pornography is a, I have not looked lately, but let's just call it a multi-billion dollar business, Right. Now I, it's probably fair, right? Yeah. I, multi-million, whatever. It's a very lucrative business, particularly on the internet. Yeah, just you know, the, the number doesn't really matter. Okay, if we had a hundred people in a room, and I said, "Who of you likes to look at pornography?" Very few people, I think. I mean, maybe there would be someone be like, "Totally," like they own it. It's cool, no big deal. But very few people, my guess would be, would be like, "I enjoy online pornography," and yet it's a you know, multi-million or billion dollar industry. So to me, there's like a part of human nature that doesn't like, and yes, I am comparing campaign journalism to pornography here, which is not like a winner on my side, but you said that I'm I didn't totally say it. right. Yeah. It's on me. I do think there is an element of people who want to feel like they are good government. Uh, I only, I, I'm an intellectual. I only care about, um, you know, like where the candidate is down on policy, all those personality stuff is bullshit. And like, I don't care about but when it gets down to rubber meets road, someone is putting all that money into the pornography industry. Someone is reading all of those articles on campaign journalism. Sorry, I'm banging my hands on the, it's not good for the audio engineer. Sorry. Like there is, <laughs> I think, an appetite for that. That is not one that we, we again, Royal We Media have created. I mean, A, I love that you're banging on the desk because- <laughs> It's clear that you and I take this really seriously yes, and think I, about but, this a yes. lot. But I will also say that pornography is not the only industry that's specifically protected by the Constitution. Journalism is. Yep. We have a role in our democratic institutions. Like it or not, if you become a journalist and you're not part of a tabloid, you are in some way taking on that mantle of protector of democracy. So... We're not supposed to be peddling pornography. We're supposed to be peddling things that lead to a more informed electorate, that lead to less cynicism in government because the government is how the dem democracy functions. That doesn't mean we don't we can't fuel skepticism. I think skepticism is he is healthy. Cynicism is not. Cynicism, this belief that nobody is in it for the, everybody's out for themselves, that has shown to be to be associated with an erosion of the democratic processes. Skepticism, all for. And so when we do things like heavy um, coverage of polling, I mean, polling is especially bad because we know for sure that the majority of journalists who use polling data in their articles are 
misinterpreting what the statistics mean. Most journalists have not gotten any training in how to report on polling data. So they will report that someone is three points ahead and they're in the lead when in right. fact the margin of error yep. is three to four points yep. and they're not in the lead. Yep. It's a dead heat. Yep. You know this. Absolutely. And so You're, And by the we way, are, you are a thousand percent right about that. There is no question. Like I grew up working for Charlie Cook, the political handicapper in, in I grew right. up in journalism. So I, I like to think I have a pretty good understanding of polling, but you're exactly right. And and I think But by you're the, way, the exception. Yes. And I think <laughs> polling is particularly dangerous in that it is um it seems simple, but is actually quite complex. Right? Like it it seems like, oh well the numbers are the numbers. It's fifty two forty eight. It's like I mean, sort of, but like anyone who knows anything about polling will tell you it's equal parts science and art, right? It's not just science. It's, well, how did they make, what does the sample look like? How did they come up with the sample? What weighting did they do after they did the sample? Like it's complicated. I mean, it's complicated. And unfortunately, I totally agree with you. And, and by the way, we have seen in the last 10 to 15 years, a flood of pollsters with no real record of i mean success or failure no real record yeah flooding the zone and guess what the worst polls are usually the cheapest and unfortunately because yeah. news media organizations are often looking for the cheapest that's what they take because it produces a number and the number produces a headline so like i'm with yep. you on that i i i i totally i think the way in which polling has been reported and then is weaponized by both sides is a hugely problematic yes I, that we I, I couldn't agree more and I, and when i try to do it i really try to always put in i try to never write just about one poll first of all because one poll is yeah, just one great. poll right like i mean it, you know it could be right but there's also any pollster will tell you you know there's a non-zero chance it's wrong like just totally wrong yeah. And I always try to say, even though I don't think people hear it, like any poll or even a series of polls is a snapshot in time. It is not representative of anything other than the sample. What you put in often dictates what you get out. Just like gas. You put crappy gas in the car. You put diesel in a car that doesn't get diesel. You get crappy results. You put good gas, you get better results. So, yes, I agree. I actually think the media organizations should force journalists to take a class on totally agree. Polling. And by the way, I think journalists should be should be forced to take a bunch of classes on how a lot of this stuff works because so much of it. I mean, I know I learned the, it, this way. It, you just kind of learn by doing. You know, it's kind of like I remember being. You didn't ask this, but I remember being. I'm sure you have the same experience. Well, maybe you don't. I did. I'd be on the phone with sources, and they'd be like, "Yeah, our GOTV efforts are really good. We're doing this, this, and, that. and I'd be, I'd be googling GOTV because I didn't know it stood for Get Out the Vote. Like, I just was, you know, like, and yeah. So I do think there is an education effort that political journalists would benefit from. I think other journalists do, right? If you cover national security, I think there's a there's sort of a bar of knowledge you meet. I think if you cover um, it, the environment, energy. I think with political journalism, it's a pretty low bar for entry. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't do this education that they should to make it so that you're telling people, to your point, you're not saying it's a lead when it's not. Right. So we're coming to the end here. And I feel like, A, 
I've loved this conversation. I have. Oh, I've, okay, I, good. I always I think worry. You I don't want a, you to hate me. I don't. Why would I hate you? We literally invited you here to disagree with me, and that's what you've done. And that, I mean, that's what we wanted I, you to do. I don't. I mean, one thing I do want to say is like this is something that I have, and I think any serious political journalist grapples with. Like, like I. I, I think the the idea, like, no, Orsay's journalism is great. It, it, it serves everyone. It's perfect. Everything we've ever, ever done is perfect. Like, no, we in the media make tons of mistakes. I personally have made a bunch of mistakes. I've been wrong about stuff. I have um, been misguided about stuff. Uh, I try to, to your transparency point, I try to always own up and be like, here's how I got to this point. Here's why I screwed up. And here's why I'm going to try not to let it happen again. But again, like, it is something that I grapple with almost on a daily basis when it comes to, like, what do you write and why? So, look, it's more important than ever that we hear from you on this. You, our audience, do you want to hear more about uh, personalities, campaign strategies, fundraising by candidates, or would you like to hear more about specific policy proposals from candidates and whether those are good, meaning effective or not. Um, We want to hear what you think about horse race coverage and whether it's good or bad. Our email address is hearmeout at slate.com. We know you have thoughts to share. Please keep them coming. Hear Me Out is a podcast from Slate. The show is produced by the very likable Maura Curry. Ben Richmond is the senior director of podcast operations and also leading in the polls. Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Slate Audio. And darn it, if she's not absolutely showing leadership qualities every day. I'm your host, Celeste Headley. Until next time, speak your mind, but keep it open. Keep it open.